Well, as you read your Bible, sooner or later you notice, you notice something that the Bible has a lot to say about sheep. Sheep are mentioned in Scripture more than any other animal, some 750 times. It makes sense because the Jews were a shepherding people, and there were lots of sheep in the ancient Near East. The land was open back then, could sustain a large livestock population. Job, just by himself, for example, had some 14,000 sheep. And Solomon, the king, when he sacrificed for the people when they dedicated the temple, he slaughtered some 120,000 sheep at once. And today we don't really see sheep all too often unless you go to a petting zoo. Maybe I will see some later this year when I head down to New Zealand. New Zealand, it's still a shepherding country. Right now in New Zealand, there are about 4 million people, but there are about 30 million sheep. So they're way outnumbered. But like I said, since sheep were all over the place in the ancient world, and since Israel was largely a shepherding people, the Bible mentions sheep often. And the Bible mentions shepherds often, because sheep really need shepherds. Some animals, they they can do their own thing. Cattle, for the most part, they're fine on their own. Other young ones might need a little bit of protection. They might need to be corralled in every now and then. But for the most part, you can just trust them to live, to graze, take care of themselves. Not so for sheep, because sheep are dumb and helpless. I'm not sure if, if this is true, but some call them the dumbest mammal on the planet. More than any other animal, sheep really need the constant care of a shepherd. Sheep are social animals that gather in a flock, which is perhaps the only good thing to have going for them. But they're also prone to wandering off and getting lost. And when this happens, they stay lost because they have no sense of direction. They can't find their way back home. Sheep are helpless if they fall into a crevice or get caught in a thorn bush. They have little chance of escape. Sheep are hopeless. They spend most of their time eating, yet they can't find their own sustainable source of food and water. And sheep are defenseless. If they're left unguarded, they have... No defense mechanism. The only thing they can do is flee and panic. All that does is separate them from the herd and make them even more defenseless. All this goes to say that sheep really do need shepherds. Israel's shepherds serve to feed the sheep, to lead them, to protect them, to, to find them. Like Jesus said in the parable, it really is true. When one sheep would wander off, it was a death sentence, so the shepherd really would leave the herd and go find the one. It was just utterly defenseless on its own. The Bible also speaks about shepherds knowing their sheep intimately, even by name. We hear that, we think, there's no way. There's no way a shepherd knows all of his sheep by name. They're just, they all look the same, there's too many of them. But in modern times, the 1800s and 1900s, several studies were done, several interviews were done with modern Middle Eastern shepherds who really, they don't live all that different from ancient Middle Eastern shepherds. Shepherds. One shepherd in Lebanon, he was asked if he counted his sheep every night. He said no. He was then asked if, how he knew if all of his sheep were present. He replied, quote, If you were to put a cloth over my eyes and bring me any sheep and only let me put hands on its face, I could tell you in a moment if it was mine or not. End quote. Another man, H.R.P. Dixon, visited the desert Arabs and he reported of an amazing event between a shepherd and his sheep. One evening, shortly after dark, an Arab shepherd began to call out one by one the names of his 51 mother sheep. And then he was able to pick out each lamb and restore it to its mother to nurse. And if this was was done in the daytime, that'd be one thing. This was done at nighttime in the midst of the noise of, of the herd. Now, when you put all these characteristics of sheep and shepherds together, it really is no wonder that that God thinks of us like sheep, with him being the the great shepherd. In God's eyes, we, we humans, we really are hopeless and helpless and defenseless. We're so prone to wander, to stray away from God, to just get lost. God so loves us, his sheep. He cares for us, guides us, protects us. He keeps us from straying. He he is the good shepherd. As King David himself recalled, reflecting on God, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Speaking of David, God in shepherding his people, he has chosen to use certain men as under-shepherds of his people. It's no coincidence that the two greatest leaders in the Old Testament were first literal shepherds over literal sheep. Moses and David first tended flocks of sheep before they tended the flock of God's people. It was the perfect training ground. God was preparing them to love and care and guide and protect and feed his people. All of Israel's leaders thereafter were thought of as shepherds, as God's under-shepherds. People need leaders. Sheep need shepherds. And so God has set men over his people to, to lead them. Now, you may know not all of Israel's leaders were, were good. Not all of their shepherds were good. Some were wicked. Some abused their leadership. They did not care for the flock. They took advantage of the flock for their own gain. And we hear of such shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34 where God speaks a word of judgment against these worthless shepherds of Israel. Let me read this for you. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. As this passage continues, God goes on to pass judgment on these wicked shepherds for leading his people astray. And that's really the power of shepherding. The shepherd has within his power the ability both to lead people astray or to God, to feed the sheep or or to slaughter them. So in Israel, in the Old Testament, when the nation stopped following the Lord, when they wandered from God, God held the shepherds, the the leaders, largely to blame. Now still, God was not surprised by this turn of events with Israel. God knew what the people really needed all along. He wanted them to see that for themselves when they were lost and scattered. What did they really need? They needed a a perfect shepherd. And that's what God promised. In the same chapter I just read, Ezekiel 34, after God condemns these wicked and neglectful shepherds of Israel, he promises this perfect shepherd. Ezekiel 34, verses 23-24. God says, Then, looking forward to this future time, I will set over them One shepherd, my servant, David, he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant, David, will be prince among them. And this prince, this servant, David, he's none other than the Messiah who came as none other than Christ. And when Jesus came, do you remember what he said? Do you remember how he identified himself? John chapter 10, verse 11. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Now today we, we have the perfect shepherd over us. The chief shepherd. The good shepherd. And now we can have true, eternal life by by being his sheep, by following him, by knowing him, by by listening to his voice, by entering into the sheepfold through him. But guess what? 
during this time, during this age, this church age, God is still using under shepherds. Yes, Christ is overall. Christ is the chief shepherd, but, but by design, God still chooses to use men who themselves are sheep to nonetheless help shepherd his people. God still wants leaders in the trenches. He wants physical shepherds among his sheep. And so in the church today, God still calls men to shepherd the flock of God. The duty of these church leaders or shepherds is largely the same, to feed the sheep, to guide them, lead them, protect them, just to care for them and to love them. Yet how much more significant is this task now? You saw the weight and the responsibility of Israel's shepherds in the Old Testament. How their wickedness could lead the entire nation astray. That's the inherent power in shepherding. This ability to draw people away from the Lord or to the Lord. Because people follow. And so the shepherding task is as important as ever. Christ is overall. He is the shepherd of his church, of course. But God is still looking for a few good shepherds to to watch over his people. Now, I mentioned how in the Bible there are... Well, the Bible talks a lot about sheep, talks a lot about shepherds, and that's true. But really, there are, there are four passages in Scripture, these four focal points where this, this theme, this motif of shepherding really comes into focus. Two in the Old Testament, Psalm 23. We saw that where David speaks of God as, as his good shepherd. There's Ezekiel 34, which we saw as well, where God rails against the wicked shepherds of Israel. There's John chapter 10, which we alluded to, where we hear from the great shepherd himself, Christ, what he has to say about shepherding. We'll see a little bit more of that later. There's one other passage in Scripture, one other focal point of this shepherding motif, and it just so happens to be our next passage in 1 Peter. Open your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 5. As we come to nearly finish up this letter, we're going through verse by verse of the book of First Peter. As we near the end, we see this, this amazing passage on, on shepherding and the flock. We come to one of these four great passages on shepherding in Scripture. In First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, let's start off by reading our passage together. First Peter chapter 5. As Peter nears the end, he says, Therefore, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here we see Peter transitioning into the conclusion of his letter. Chapter 5, it's all conclusion. And first, before he speaks to the church, he has a word for the leaders. For the elders, he says in verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you. So, so who are these guys? Who are these elders? Simply put, the elders are the leaders of the church. The Greek term for elder, presbyteros, we get the word presbyter from this. Originally it referred to an older man, someone who was just older. But this term became a, a special term for, for a leader, someone who was mature wise, respected. Usually they were still older men, but occasionally they were found among mature younger men like Timothy. Elders were the leaders in the lowish and the local Jewish synagogues, and this form of leadership naturally transitioned over into the church. Every church, without exception, was to be run or, or ruled by these elders, a plurality of elders. For example, Paul and Titus, he instructed Titus to appoint elders in every single church he visited. Also, right here in, in Peter, who's Peter writing to? 
He's writing to Christians scattered all throughout Asia Minor, all these different churches, yet he's expecting them all to have elders among them, he says. He's just expecting it. You see the same thing in James. James, also writing to churches scattered all throughout the empire, he just expects that they're going to have elders. And James was written very early on. And so early on we see elders were the leaders of the church. The office of elder is seen to be the primary form of local church leadership in the Bible. Last year we studied Titus, and in chapter 1, Paul had a lot to say about these elders. If you want to learn more, you can go back and get those messages. Now, if you're here with us last week, it, we studied the end of 1 Peter chapter 4. You might be wondering why Peter is talking about elders now. It's kind of a strange transition. And here's what I mean. If you remember, chapter 4, Peter really got to the, the climax on his teaching about suffering in the Christian life. For example, look back at verse 12 in chapter 4. Refresh your memory a little bit. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so he's talking about suffering. He reaches this climax. Right after this, he just jumps into chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Wait wait a second. How is Peter connecting the dots between this, this topic of suffering? And then he says, Therefore, in light of that, I exhort the elders. Well, the answer comes back in verse 17, which we saw last week. Look there again, verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become the outcome? Or rather, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? As we saw, that this judgment, it's not a judgment of condemnation, but of testing. It's an evaluation where believers, they'll be found approved, but they still must pass through God's his fire, his refining judgment, where they will be refined. And where does this, this refining judgment begin? With the church. If it begins with the church, who do you think is going to be first in line? The leaders, the, the elders. Therefore, Peter says, in light of that, I exhort the elders among you. Elders, first and foremost, must be tested or judged and found approved among God's people. And then they have the task of seeing other believers found approved as well. It's always top-down in God's structure. Leaders may have greater privilege, but they also have greater accountability. They receive a stricter judgment. And isn't that exactly what... James chapter 3, verse 1 says, he says, Brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing as such that we will incur a stricter judgment. It means they're held to a higher standard, a higher accountability in, in everything. So this is why Peter, he's concluding his letter, speaking first to the leaders, to the elders. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 5, he's not talking down to them. He's talking with them. He's talking alongside of them. Humbly, graciously, appealing to them as their fellow elder. Now to be sure, Peter, he was more than an elder. He was an apostle. Elders oversee one local church. Apostles, at the time, they oversaw all the churches. But instead of of throwing his weight around, this appeal is simply from one shepherd to another. Peter knows the instructions he's about to give them apply to him as well. And so he's not speaking above them. He's not speaking down to them. He's speaking alongside of them, appealing to them. Peter identifies himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ in verse 1. Now, it's true. Peter observed Christ's suffering. But this most likely refers to him testifying about his participation in the suffering 
of Christ. The word witness, it means to testify, you know, like a witness in a court of law, or they're testifying in a case. Early Christians, they were known as witnesses because that's what they did. They went around and they testified about who Jesus, what, who Jesus was and what he did, his suffering. But you see, they, were, they themselves were made to suffer on account of that. And so their witness took on this, this angle of also sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In fact, that word for witness in the Greek, it's, it's martyreo. We get the word martyr from that. And it came from these early Christians. They were just witnessing, testifying of Christ and his sufferings, oftentimes to the point of death. They were martyred. They were witnesses. And that's Peter. He is one who witnessed and shared in the sufferings of Christ. He's a witness. He's also a partaker, he says in verse 1. Also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Suffering and glory are always neighbors in Peter's mind. Like he said back in chapter 4, verse 13, although he suffers now, he looks forward to that time when the suffering will just melt away and there will be glory. Glory will be revealed. Peter looks forward to that time of glory. The church should look forward to that time of glory. And elders should look forward to that time of glory as well. You can already see Peter's building this anticipation that leaders, they're they're not exempt. They're not exempt from suffering like everyone else, and they're not exempt from glory like everyone else as well. So now now we're set up. Verse 1, it's kind of set up. Verse 1 is Peter's transition to his final instructions, the, the conclusion of his letter. But like I said, before he gets to the church at large, he's got a special word for the leaders. This really, it's a charge from one shepherd to fellow shepherds who are all under the the chief shepherd. And so now as we continue on with verses 2 through 4, we're going to find three depictions of godly shepherds. That's what we're going to find in this passage. Verses 2 through 4, three depictions of godly shepherds. I've got to say, briefly, believe it or not, this applies to all of you. You may be thinking, well, I'm I'm not an elder, so this doesn't really apply to me. Well, granted, it applies most directly to the elders, but, but look, if you're a leader in any capacity, this is what God expects of you. This is what he looks for in leadership. Also, think about this. Husbands and parents, do you think that God thinks of you as the shepherd of your family. Yes. You better believe it. You too can learn principles from this text on leading your family. And then finally, for all of you, without exception, all of you, if you know Christ, you're a sheep. We all are sheep. So at the very least, you can learn from this passage what to look for in a shepherd. See, we live in a very strange time, a unique time in history where sheep get to choose their shepherds. That that never happened in the past. But now there's so many churches in America, you really have your pick. You can choose your your shepherd in a large degree. Yet choose carefully. Look, someday, chances are, you're going to move. You're going to move to a new territory. You're going to need to find a new church, most likely. How are you going to find a new church? How are you going to make that decision where to land? Well, choose first according to doctrine. Find a church that knows the gospel, that values the truth, that still upholds and believes in the truth. That is essential. But choose secondly based on leadership. They're they're shepherds. I mean, who cares what kind of music they play, what clothes they wear, how fancy the building is? I mean, who cares? Look at their shepherds. Are they godly and qualified men or not? That's what matters in finding a church. You might ask, okay, but what exactly should I be looking for in a shepherd? Well, you're about to find out. One way or another, we can all profit from this text, from these three depictions of godly shepherds. And so let's get into them now. The first one is this. It's the shepherd's task. The shepherd's task. Look there at the beginning of verse 2. 
It's expected. It's pretty straightforward. Nonetheless, important. The shepherd's task, verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Now surely Peter has in mind the image that Jesus gave to him in John 21 when Christ said to him three times, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. The chief shepherd was giving to his under shepherds their primary task, shepherd, just shepherd the sheep. Everything that goes with being a shepherd is now the job description of the elder. What do shepherds do? What are they supposed to do? Feed the flock, lead it, guide it, protect it, care for it, all that stuff. Now that all applies to elders. That's their job. Whatever goes along with shepherding. Notice in verse 1 how Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. The flock does not belong to the elders. The flock, the church, is God's precious possession. He died for the flock to redeem it. He gave his more precious blood for it, to purchase it. And so he expects his shepherds to treat it carefully, to cherish it, to treasure it as well. Like Paul said to the shepherds of Ephesus, the elders of Ephesus, in Acts 20, verse 28, he told them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The shepherd's task is very simple, very very obvious. To shepherd. To shepherd God's people. Now imagine this. You're going on a two-week vacation to Europe. Dream vacation. You've always wanted to go. Europe, two weeks. You're excited. You have a dog, though. You've got a pet dog that you love. So you can't take him with you. Pretend it's a boy. So you leave him with a friend your friend's going to watch him during your vacation. So you go on your trip. You come back. You go to your friend's house to pick up your dog, but you're, you're shocked by what you see. Your dog is thin. He's lost a lot of weight. Really, he looks emaciated like he's starving. He's shaking. He's shivering in the cold. He, he smells. He's dirty. His hair is all frayed and disheveled. When he stands up, he limps like his leg has been hurt. Really, it looks like he's just barely hanging on to life. What's happened? Well, your friend has neglected, even abused your dog, your precious possession. I mean, to you, your dog is like your family member. Now, how would this make you feel? Make you feel outraged. Now, you want someone who will, who will love your dog as much as you do, who will care for it like you would. I mean, can you imagine anything worse than leaving your, your dog behind with someone like this who would so neglect and abuse it? And if so, now you know what God thinks of shepherds who neglect, even abuse his flock, his sheep, his precious possession. It's the church. He, he hates them. He, he will judge such wicked shepherds. Now granted, there are no perfect shepherds. But this most basic task must be met, has to be done, has to be carried out, bottom line, to shepherd, shepherd the sheep. To shepherd the flock of God, to love it as much as God does, to care for what he has entrusted to you. And Peter expands a little bit. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, Exercising oversight, he says. Word for oversight, it's, a, it's an interesting word. Episkopos in the Greek, we get the word episcopal from it. Now that, that second half, skopos, we get the word scope from. A scope, something we use to see something else through better. Microscope lets you see things close up. Telescope lets you th- see things far away, so on. Well, that, that prefix, epi, you know, episcopos, episcopos, that, that prefix epi means on or above, over. So this word, you put them together, it literally means oversight. And the picture behind the word, it's very clear. 
to exercise oversight means to see over everything, not just close up, not just far away, everything, to watch over all. And this is what elders are to do. They are to watch over all the church. All the sheep are to be accounted for, both individually and corporately. The entire flock must be under their their constant watchful eye. Shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. This is the first depiction of a godly shepherd. They carry out the shepherd's task. The shepherd God's flock, caring for it, watching for it. And this task is so essential, it's the work of elders. If you ever go to a church and the leaders are not feeding the flock or protecting it or guarding it or caring for it, then just run away. Avoid that place. This is a point we've labored labored before, the work of the elder. So I'll leave it at that for now. And just know that if, if this task is not being carried out, there is no godly leadership present. So beware such a church. Now let's move on to the the second depiction of godly leaders. The Bible has plenty to say about the task of elders. It actually has more to say about the character of elders. The second depiction is the shepherd's heart. From verses 2 and 3, the shepherd's heart. Like we learned, the task of elders is so critical. They must be shepherding the flock or else they're not shepherds. But in addition to the task, their character is essential, who they are. God does not, he's not looking for their GPA, the number of degrees they have, how successful they are in the business world, how much money they make. Those things don't matter to God. What God looks for, what qualifies an elder to lead is his holiness, his godliness, his Christ-likeness. And we learn about such character qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But there's another thing. There's a third thing. In addition to having the right task and the right character, elders must also have, thirdly, the the right heart, the right drive, the right motivation. And this is where Peter's instruction really comes into play. Peter's approaching it from this angle, the angle of of their drive. What drives them to serve? What motivates them to lead? Where's their heart at? Just as important, their task, their character, but also also their heart, their motive. And what we're going to find here in these couple verses are, are three driving factors in the shepherd's heart. Three factors driving the shepherd's heart. Let's cover these from verses 2 and 3. First, from verse 2, we see it is not duty but desire. That's the first driving factor. Not duty but desire. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, first, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And here we see shepherds must not be driven by by duty. They They must not be under compulsion, meaning they're serving because they feel forced or obligated, like they've got to be there. They don't really want to, but but they have to. There's nothing so ineffective as an unwilling leader, someone who doesn't want to lead. Instead, shepherds must be driven voluntarily, meaning by desire. They want to be there. They want to serve. Shepherds must be internally driven for the right reasons. Think about Christ. When Jesus came, he was not forced to die on the cross. As he said, nobody took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. He he voluntarily went to the cross. He was not under some external compulsion to go to the cross. But he was, in a sense, under compulsion to go to the cross internally. Why? Well, it's for the right reasons. He looked upon the, the people. He saw them lost like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion on them, so... He went to the cross. Also, Jesus knew God would be glorified by this, so he went to the cross. Likewise, shepherds should be internally driven, driven by a love for God's sheep, a love for God's glory. Have you ever done community service or volunteer work? Some people today, that they're forced 
to do this. They're forced to do community service, maybe to get out of a fine or a penalty, even jail time. They're required to do some community service. They show up, but they don't, they don't want to be there. They're under compulsion. They're, they're not there voluntarily. No shepherd of the church should ever serve like this. But some people, they volunteer because they want to. If you were to ask them, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you volunteering? Why are you helping these homeless people? They would tell you, I have to. I have to be here. Don't you see these people in need? You see, they're there voluntarily, but at the same time, they're also compelled internally for the right reasons to serve. And likewise, God's shepherds should be driven not by duty, but desire. Not by self, but the sheep. Not by compulsion, but by God's glory. And just to put this in historical context, this, this was so important for Peter's readers. This was a time of great persecution. It was dangerous to be a leader. It was a dangerous time to be a leader. When the world, when the Romans started killing Christians, who were the first to go? It was the leaders, the, the elders. I mentioned a couple weeks ago how the church in Rome, the bishops, the leaders there, nearly every single one was martyred. Some only lasted four days in their office. It was a death sentence, but, but men still rose to take the lead. It was not a popular time to be a leader. They were the first to suffer, the first to die. And Peter knew. He knew this. He knew the danger of having unwilling leaders in a time of persecution. That's bad. When the going gets tough, such unwilling leaders will compromise. And they don't want to be there. They don't want to suffer for the sheep. They don't want to die for the sheep. So they're going to compromise either their message or their lifestyle just to avoid the persecution. And that, of course, would be disastrous for the church. And Christ is not looking for such unwilling leaders, even today. He's looking for those who are truly willing to live for the sheep, even die for the sheep, lay down their lives for the sheep. Isn't this what he said? Isn't this what he did? John chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. God's not looking for a hireling. It's not just a job. He's looking for a few good shepherds who will voluntarily, willingly care for his sheep. First, these shepherds must not be driven by duty, but by desire. Secondly, the second driving factor in a shepherd's heart, not greed, but zeal. Not greed, but zeal. Look at verse 2 again. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Here Peter continues this pattern. A negative first, followed by a positive. First, negatively, shepherds must not be driven, he says, by sordid gain. It's talking about greed, shameful gain. Like Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, elders must be known, or rather free from, the love of money. All too many men pose as shepherds, appearing to feed the sheep, when in reality all they want to do is fleece the flock. False teachers, charlatans, abound, really seeking to profit from the church. They, they just want to get rich. They're looking for the paycheck. Just, just do me this. If you ever see someone claiming to be a shepherd, that they claim to be a pastor, maybe even sound good, but, but they just love money. 
that they're basking in the dough, that they're flaunting their, their wealth with their multiple houses and multiple cars and jets and all this stuff. They're just living it up. Just watch out. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that is literally on the calling card of a false teacher, this love for money. Now, he doesn't say that it's wrong for shepherds to earn a living off the sheep. That's not wrong. From an early date, the church felt the need to take care of certain shepherds, to provide for them financially so that they could be freed up 24-7 to minister. As 1 Timothy 5, 17 18 says, the worker is worthy of his wages. Those shepherds who excel at teaching and preaching should be cared for by the church so that they can excel in preaching and teaching even more without having to worry about a, a weekly job. So notice in 1 Peter 5, he's not writing against gain. He's writing against sordid gain, shameful gain, greed, this, this love for money. He's not prohibiting elders from receiving a fair wage for, for their toil, but it's a warning against false shepherds who feed the flock so as only to steal their fleece. Simple rule of thumb. If you would, if you would ever feel shame if people knew where your money came from or how you got it, that's, that's what sordid gain is. It's this shameful wealth. Now look, when the church started paying and, and taking care of these elder pastors, was that a good thing? It was a good thing. It freed them up for greater ministry, but there is a danger. Right away, even till today, there's a danger in this. There's always going to be some people who would view the ministry as a paycheck, as just a way of living, a source of income. It's another job. Even if they play their cards right, it can be a way to get rich. This is what Peter warns against. Elders must not be driven by money, and they must not pursue shameful gain. Instead, he says, they must be driven by by zeal, by eagerness, by, by passion for the Lord. Their focus must be on what the sheep need, not what they get out of it. Look for the man who has a spirit of a shepherd, not the spirit of a hireling. There's this church in L.A., it's not my old one, but not far, though. A couple of years ago, they had this huge college ministry because they were right next to a college. And the elders were faced with the decision, should they really pump a lot of shepherding resources into this college ministry? Because after all, these poor college students, they barely give any money to the church. So what's the answer to that question? The answer is yes. Of course you you pour into them and invest in them. It doesn't matter if they never give a dime. If they're sheep and you're a shepherd, you care for them with eagerness. For for God's sake, not for the sake of a paycheck. It it doesn't matter. Elders must be driven not, not by greed, but by a zeal for the Lord, his sheep, his work. Finally, we have, we have the third driving factor behind a, a shepherd's heart. The third one here, it's not power, but service. Not power, but service. Again, he starts negatively, verse 3. He says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. He says, an elder should not be driven by power. Some people, they have a lust for money. Some have a lust for power. Neither should be found anywhere in the church among its leaders. This is speaking of the leader who forcefully rules over his people, subduing them harshly. He he is arrogant, selfish, restrictive, arbitrary in his rule. He governs by threats, intimidations, bullying, manipulation. He, He just beats his chest and waves his fist over people until they just fall in line. And look, if you have a leader, just someone in any capacity leading you, and they make you feel small or dumb or intimidated, that there's something wrong there with that leader. Leaders should make the sheep feel loved, cared for, at times, sure, challenged, but always loved. This doesn't say that elders have no authority over the flock. They do have authority. That's why they must be warned not to abuse their authority. 
The church is called to submit to its leaders. Hebrews 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you. So God calls the sheep to listen to the shepherds. That is their call. But nonetheless, elders must keep their power in check constantly. They're under Christ, after all, and he's not going to tolerate them abusing his sheep over some power trip. There's a saying, Western shepherds lead from behind, but Eastern shepherds lead from in front. And what that means is that us Westerners, we govern by force, by by power. We poke and prod and, and strike the sheep until they just fall in line. We beat them into submission But Easterners, they rule by example. They go out in front. They set the course. They show the way. They provide an example for the sheep to follow in their leadership. Now, whether this is really true of Easterners and Westerners, who knows? But it must be true of church leaders. They should not lord their authority over the sheep entrusted to their care, but instead go in front. Lead them. Show them the way to follow Christ. Be be that example for them. And this this is paramount. In my opinion, do you want the number one litmus test for a godly leader? Is he prideful and, and powerful? Has the power gone to his head? Does he want you to serve him? And just just stay away. Stay away from that shepherd, you're going to be abused. But is he humble? Is he gracious? Is he a servant? Is his desire just to serve you and to serve the Lord? There's not a better leader than that. It's not my word. Don't take my word for it. What did Christ teach about leadership? Matthew 20, verses 25 and 28 through 28. Some of the disciples, they started to realize, hey, We're going to have it pretty good in the kingdom. I mean, we're his right-hand men, the 12 of us. We're going to have it good. The power, the prestige was going to their head. They wanted more. They wanted people to serve them. What did Christ say? Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called them to himself. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ did it. He expects his shepherds to do it as well. This is the true the godly shepherd's heart. They're driven not by duty, but desire. Not by greed, but by zeal. And not by power, but by service. And whether you're a shepherd or or you're looking for a shepherd, just know that their heart has to be in the right place. And now we have one final word, that this third depiction of the godly shepherd, going back to our bigger outline, this third depiction of, of the godly shepherd, which really hits home for them. Number three, it's the shepherd's reward. The shepherd's reward. We saw the shepherd's task, the shepherd's heart. Now from verse four, the shepherd's reward. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's a reminder, elders, they don't run the show. Church does not belong to them. It belongs to Christ. He's the chief shepherd. But this reminder, it's not discouraging. In fact, it's actually encouraging to the shepherds. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, Peter described Jesus as the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And as we learned in chapter 4, we are to entrust our souls to God to guard them. And when Christ returns as shepherd, He will bring our our life, our eternal life, with him. 
When Jesus came the first time, it was as a lamb to be slain. When he comes the second time for his people, it will be as a shepherd. And at that time, he will bring with him unfading crowns of glory. It's eternal glory. It's promised to everyone in verse 10. But verse 4, it's a special word of encouragement for the elders. They may endure greater affliction, greater hardship, greater labor, but they won't be left out when glory comes. This word for unfading actually comes from the amaranth flower, which was it was thought of a flower that didn't lose its beauty. It didn't fade. It still looked good. And so it became a symbol for immortality. They took these flowers, they would weave them together into a crown or a wreath, and they'd be awarded to victors at the games. But the thing is, all such glory like this fades in this life. I mean, get the, get the best flower you want. It doesn't matter. The glory in this life, it, it just fades. All of it. In all respects. Just a quick example. Do you remember, do you know, who won the, the marathon race, the gold medal, in the 1900 Olympics held in Paris, France? Do you know who won? Of course you don't. And you have no idea. Nobody knows. When he won the race, he knew nothing but glory, maybe for a year, maybe two years, maybe even a decade. But where's that glory now? Just gone, faded, not even remembered. No glory lasts in this life, but, but we have glory coming in Christ, through Christ, that's going to last. It's eternal, unfading, imperishable glory. This is the final encouragement to elders. Their, their labor is not in vain, and the reward of glory awaits them. You can say that those who suffer more in this life know Christ more because they know his sufferings more. And I think that's true. You could also say that those who shepherd in this life know Christ more because they know his shepherding more as well. This is true and and this simply leads to a greater joy when he returns. Shepherding can be a real challenge for anyone, for all of us. The more you pick up your cross daily and follow Christ, the more hardship you're going to endure. But if you do endure, awaiting for all of us is glory. It's a life with him, free from sin, free from death, full of joy forevermore. I think it would be fitting to close a preview of things to come, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Speaking to everyone now, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we, we can't wait for that time when you will indeed f- complete us and perfect us when Christ returns, when he comes back with, with our lives with him, our eternal lives that he promised and provided for himself. We worship you. We thank you for the cross which gives us that life. And uh, even as we suffer now, may we endure and look forward to that end. I, I pray for our elders here. I thank you for them, for they are godly men like this keep their hearts in the right place, uh, being driven by the right things, focus on the right task, looking forward to the right reward. And for all of us, for any of us in, in any leadership capacity, Lord, help us to learn a word from this passage, what it looks like, what it means to you to be a leader, a shepherd of, of your people in one form or another. May we all pursue Christ. May we all care for one another and just seek your glory in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.